The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good evening and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, as every week, we're working our fingers to the bone to make sure that you get the information and inspiration to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And this week is question and answer week, which is going to confuse longtime listeners because traditionally we've done question and answer week on the last Wednesday of the month. And for a little while here, we're going to try and do it on the first Wednesday of the month because that just seems to fit in better with people's questions. We have a whole month worth of shows that people ask questions after the show, and that way I can look back and talk to the guests about the questions, and we can get them answered. Anytime you have a real estate-related question, you can send it to askvina at gmail.com. And I mean, like throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the year, we will eventually get them get to them here on Real Life Real Estate. And they can be about anything related to real estate investing. So uh, in this show, we're going to do a little bit of a mixture between questions and a variety of very interesting comments I got on a show we did a few weeks ago about the 2022 market. We had so many listeners who were nice enough to participate in that that I just couldn't get to all of them. So uh going to intersperse some of the more interesting comments that people made about what they think is going on in their market or in their segment of the market in 2022. I think we could all use all the help we could get with figuring out 2022. So uh let's see. Our first question at askvina at gmail.com is from RK who says, if someone has a rental property in their personal name, where should the rent checks go? A personal or business account? If personal, does one need to transfer the deed and mortgage listing over to the business? The bank where my business account is says I need to talk to a currently licensed CPA to determine this. It's in Connecticut. So, RK, let's just start with the question of whether one should own a rental property in one's personal name. Every CPA, every attorney that I have ever heard who knows something about rental properties and the liability of owning rental properties and how that liability can slop over into your personal life. Should there be a lawsuit that you lose that's not covered by your insurance and now the defendant can collect on your personal bank account, your personal house, 
there's a reason that you are always hearing it recommended that you own rentals in an LLC. You don't, though. Go, go ahead and get a Connecticut attorney and talk to them about what it would take to move your personal rental property into your LLC, because I think you should probably do that ASAP. Uh, that's a non-legal opinion. That's just what I've heard from every attorney I've ever talked to. So what you have is a rental in your personal name. And it sounds as if you would like to have the checks written to a business account. Maybe that's for privacy reasons. Maybe that's for bookkeeping reasons. And that your bank is saying, well, you can't have a business account without an LLC. That's probably not true. I think that if you went to your bank and said, I want to open a DBA account, a, a doing business as account, and it's going to be me who's the signatory on that account, and it's going to be my social security number that you report to, but I want it to be called RK Properties or whatever you want it to be called, they will probably open up that account for you. But if you're going to take the advice of every attorney I've ever talked to and go ahead and move the property into an LLC, then you will then get a uh, employee, an EIN number for that LLC. You will go to the bank with your new corporate documentation and that EIN number, and you will open up the account under that name and you will call all of your tenant tenants. I don't know how many of these you have. And you will tell them to start writing checks to this other entity going forward. So thanks for your question. Call a Connecticut attorney. Look at getting this thing moved to an LLC. It won't be very expensive. It shouldn't even be, it shouldn't even be like a taxable event for you to like the, the county shouldn't charge you taxes on that. And, uh, yeah. Good luck, and thanks for asking your question. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's Q&A week. If you have a question, send it to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. And maybe confusingly for some of you, it's question and answer week, even though it's the first Wednesday of the month, not the last Wednesday of the month. We're going to try moving it to here and see if... That helps you all to have lots of questions that you can send to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Uh, going back to the emails, I have a question here from Kirk. And the question is, I have a seller who's willing to do seller financing in order to sell, but not sure of all the details yet. What should I do next? Get market tolerable payments for that area from a banker or something. Uh, wow, Kirk, you just opened up a can of worms that I'm not sure we could discuss all of the, all of the little wormies in the entire time we have left for the show. But I will try and summarize. First of all, the seller is willing to do seller financing. What kind of seller financing? Is he willing to carry back a first mortgage? Is he willing to care? Does he already have a loan on the property and he's offering to sell it to you subject to that loan, maybe with a seller second? 
Is he willing to do a lease option? Uh, these are some things you need to know about because it's unlikely that your seller actually does. Uh, depending on where you are, his favorite thing that he might have in his mind is a contract for deed. And all of those things would have payments, but they would have different tax and legal and control effects on you. And so the payments you would be willing to make might be different with all of those scenarios. But since most people, when they say fault seller financing, what they mean is a seller carry back first mortgage. The seller's house is paid off. He just wants you to make him payments instead of paying the whole amount all at once. I'm going to go ahead and assume that that is what you meant. Now, I think the basis of the question you thought you were asking is how much payment can I make every month? And that's not going to be a question for a banker or for for a real estate agent or for a mortgage broker or for anybody else other than you. The analysis that you need to be doing here is how much rent can I get from this property? Like, like once I've done whatever I'm going to do to it, gotten it stabilized, gotten it updated, whatever, what is the market rent? And you can... You could call a real estate agent who does property management and get their opinion, or you could go to one of the many, many properties for rent sites and find out what other people are charging for rent. And that should give you some small range. You know, don't come back to me and tell me, oh, it'll rent for between 1500 and 2500 a month. Now, the range should be more like it could rent for fifteen to $1,600 a month. Because trust me, the one that's for rent for fifteen hundred and the one that's for rent for twenty five hundred are in no way the same property. One of those is much, much. It's bigger. It's better. It's got a four car garage. There's something really different about the upper part of that range than there is about the lower part of that range. So, um, once you have established the market rent, you need to say twenty percent of that every month is going to go is going to not go into my pocket. It's going to go into a reserve account for maintenance, vacancy, and what's called your CapEx account, your capital expenditures account, which is money that you are saving up because even though you just put the roof on the house and the furnace is only five years old and the kitchen looks pretty good, over time, those things will go bad and have to be replaced. So they're capital expenditures that you won't make them this month, but you need to have the money available in an account for them when it is time to pay for them. So 20% only covers vacancy, maintenance, and CapEx. If you're going to have the property professionally managed, you need to subtract about another 12% of the gross rent from the rent, from that top line rent number. Then you're going to subtract the taxes, which you can find probably on your county's website. You're going to subtract the monthly insurance. And the number remaining is the highest number you could possibly, possibly, possibly offer the seller as a monthly payment. If you offer him that number as a monthly payment, the property will have no cash flow. So why would you ever offer... That monthly payment, well, you might do it if the seller was giving you a 0% interest loan. 
A 0% interest loan would mean that every month when you made that payment, you're taking that much off what you owe the seller. More likely, you'll want to say, well, and I want to make 200 a month or 250 a month or some number per month. So I'm also going to subtract that number from the calculation we just did. And I'm going to say the remaining number is what I can give the seller each and every month. Okay, so all we've talked about so far is what is the payment? The other question you need to ask yourself is what is the overall purchase price? It's possible, it's in fact likely, that if this seller is, quote, willing to do owner finance, seller financing, it's because he wants a price that you wouldn't be willing to pay for cash, and he's offering you terms instead of go get your own money in order to entice you to buy it at that price. So can you pay his probably higher than market price? Sure you can. If he's willing to carry this financing until the whole property is paid off, no matter how long that takes. And he's willing to um, let you have full control of the property. Right. I mean, we said it was seller financing, so that would mean you got the deed. Uh, what is the interest rate that that payment means on that price? I don't know. You're going to have to get a financial calculator and figure that out. If if he's willing to do zero interest, awesome. That's like the best kind of interest. If he wants 10% interest, the payment's probably going to be too high for you to hold it for a rental. So I would really suggest, Kirk, that just based on your question, you spend some time really digging down and studying all the the pros and the cons and the ways of evaluating and how how do these things work because it there's this there's this saying I know it's a saying because I say it a lot that just because a deal is an owner finance deal or a no qualifying deal or a no money down deal that does not mean it's a good deal and it's up to you to recognize that it's a good deal for you. What's a good deal for you might not be a good deal for somebody else, depending on your goals and that you spend some time, maybe spend some money investigating all the different options here so that next time you talk to a seller who's willing to do owner financing, you are the one who knows about that and you're not depending on him to be the one who knows about it? Thanks for your question, Kirk. Uh, moving on to a, a question from John. He says, I'd like to ask a question about the work for equity strategy. My specific question is, you mentioned, oh boy, this must be from an old show. You mentioned using a loan servicing company at about $20 a month for these deals. I'm writing to ask if you can offer a referral to a particular company and then there's a question about why he doesn't see me very much in Cleveland. Okay, so um, just for some backgrounds for folks who maybe didn't listen to that show and don't know about the work for equity strategy, what John is talking about is the strategy of selling properties, usually single family homes, that are in a condition that we call ugly but livable. So they're outdated. They really need some cosmetic work to bring them up to full value. But the roof keeps 
you dry, the furnace comes on when you turn it on. The same thing with the central air. The gutters don't leak. Like it's not there's there's no like danger to somebody's health or safety in the property. And not rehabbing that property. Instead, finding somebody who is a skilled person, handy person, right? Somebody like a, like a contractor who would love to buy a house and has no problem fixing it up himself or herself, but also does maybe not have the credit or the down payment to just go buy a house on the open market and get a bank loan. And selling this ugly but livable house to that qualified person at a monthly payment they can afford at a price that's probably a little bit higher than what you could get by just putting it on the open market and selling it and carrying the financing for that person. So that's the background on what a, what a work for equity strategy is. Um, when you do this, when you, when you are the seller in a work for equity deal, you are not a lender per se, because you're not loaning somebody money so they can buy a house. You are selling them the house often under a land contract or a, even an owner held mortgage and letting them make you payments. Kind of the reverse of what we're talking about with RK here. And because that is, that falls under the, things that a loan servicing company quote unquote does a lot of people, once they have sold a house on repair for equity, they do hire a loan servicing company to collect the payments, pay out the taxes and insurance as they come due. And of course, send out notices if the payments do not come in. So to deal with all of that stuff, uh, I did, I did mention a loan servicing company. I did not say the name because this is public radio and I can't actually make referrals to specific companies. But if you Google loan servicing companies, you will find a bunch of them and you can call them up and find out what their rates are. That's not something that most people actually do with repair for equity deals, just because it does cost 20 or more dollars per month. And that is like some of my repair for equity deals. The, the buyer's only paying me 400 bucks a month. So 20 bucks is a lot of that. Most people service the those deals themselves. So that's something you might want to consider unless you get a giant portfolio of these and it becomes a big problem for you. Uh, thanks for your question, John. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. If you have a question, go ahead and email it. The email address is askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. This is the week where, I don't know, people just ask the questions that are confusing them about real estate and I try to answer them. And if I can't answer them, I try to reach out to the folks who are experts in that field and get the answers from them and then say them on the radio so I sound super smart. That's not true. I try to give credit wherever that has to happen. Uh, questions can come to askvina at gmail.com, A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. And hey, there are no stupid questions. You've heard that before. There are no stupid questions. And if you happen to ask a really stupid question, I'll just read it and not read your name. How about that? We'll make a deal about that. And I won't call you stupid. All right. Question from... Another John, different John than last time. He says, 
In my seller prospecting, I've run into an older disabled seller with a private mortgage loan on his house, which he hasn't paid on in years and also hasn't paid his property taxes in years. He has no idea what he owes or to whom. How should I approach this situation? All right, let me start by saying, if by disabled you mean he doesn't seem to be mentally all there, you should not approach the situation in any way other than through his attorney or his like kids or grandkids, whoever's taking care of him. You should not do deals with people who don't seem to understand what deal they're doing. Like literally, if he is in the middle stages of Alzheimer's and that's why he doesn't know what he owes on his house and he were to sign a contract with you and sell you the property, his heirs could come back later and say he wasn't competent to sign that contract and undo the whole thing. And yes, even if you have subsequently put $50,000 worth of repairs into it, that would all be super bad. So if I, I'm going to assume that's not the kind of disabled you're talking about, I'm going to assume what actually happened here is that somebody like a family member or a friend loaned him the money and they both kind of just let it slide for years. And maybe, I don't know, the friend sold the mortgage at some point and he vaguely is aware of that. I Whatever. We're, we're assuming he's not mentally disabled here. How would you find out who he owed that money to? The answer is... At your county recorder's office, there is some place in your county where all of the important real estate documents go to live. Here in Ohio, that's called the county recorder. In other places, it's called things like, I don't know, the registrar of deeds. Find out what that's called in your county. And it either online or you may have to make a trip to the courthouse you will find this recorded mortgage if it was ever recorded. Most mortgages are recorded, even like friends and family don't usually like loan you money to buy a house and then not bother to record the mortgage. So that will at least tell you who the mortgage holder is. If the mortgage holder has subsequently pay, uh, sold the mortgage to somebody else, there would be a record of that too, that the mortgage had been sold so that is where I would start. And the other thing that doesn't involve potentially a trip downtown to the recorder's office is you could find out if he's got a box where he keeps his important paperwork. Just like ask him, do you have a box where you keep stuff like this? Do you ever get any mail from this mortgage holder saying that you should pay them? Because if I could look at those documents... I could track down with that person what they think that they are owed, and then we could make a deal of some sort. If it's a private loan and the person has, the lender has kind of given up on the whole idea of ever getting paid, there's every chance that even if the official amount owed is $200,000, that they would be very happy to take $100,000 as a full payoff, and you might be able to give this fellow some Money to go do his next thing by negotiating with his lender to take a lower payoff, like a private short sale. So, gosh, John, good luck with that. I would love to hear how that one turns out. Question via askvina at gmail.com from Connie. 
If you are brand new to real estate investing and have little or no capital, which area of real estate would you focus on and why? Connie, I'm not going to give you the answer that I think you expect. You expect me to talk about an exit strategy of some sort, but I would say that what you need to focus on is building up Connie's knowledge because money is not the only currency you have available to you. Your knowledge is also a currency. How is it a currency? Well, if you know things like how to um, help other people with their deals by, for instance, managing the rental they want to buy, but which they cannot manage because it's far, it's, it's near you, but far from them, or they don't, can't manage because they don't know how to manage it. You can cut yourself in on other people's deals by saying things like, I would be thrilled to manage that property. And I have very little property management experience, but I have an intensive education in property management, and I don't want to be your property manager because I don't have a real estate license and I can't do that. I will manage your property for, quote, free in order to be a partner in your property, in order to be a 10% owner of your new property. I don't want to put any money in it. I want to put the work in it. You should build up your knowledge on all of the basic things that real estate investors need to know, such as uh, how do I find the after repaired value of a property? How do I estimate the repair costs of a property? How do I talk to sellers in a way that is that gets me the information I need and is also kind and rapport building? How do I, what how much should I offer on properties once I figured out what the after repaired value and repair costs are? Uh, what do the contracts look like for purchasing a property? Uh, how do I fill them out? So like that really basic stuff you have got to get yourself good at because with that sort of information, you can do things like wholesale properties, which is a good exit strategy for somebody with limited capital. Or if you want to take it to the next step and do what some of our previous questioners here have done and negotiate seller financing on deals. You can actually buy and hold properties with really limited capital, or you could do what I said first in reverse. Maybe you have a seller who's willing to carry financing, but he needs $10,000 down in order to feel good about carrying that financing, and you don't have $10,000. Somebody does. Somebody would be happy to get half of a really good deal, for putting up $10,000 and letting you manage it. So invest in you, invest in your knowledge, get around people who are doing deals and who can help and support you both with money and with additional knowledge. And uh, don't worry about having no capital because in real estate, if you can't make money without money, it's kind of hard to make money with money. Some of the biggest mistakes I see made are by people who come into real estate chomping at the bit and with a lot of money. Because then they run out and they buy a deal that they shouldn't have bought because, hey, I've got I've got plenty of money and I want to buy it for the experience. If by for the experience, 
you mean I'm willing to lose money on this deal just to say I did a deal, then fine, do that. Thank you for your question, Connie. Uh, let's see, got a question here from Brittany that you and I are going to be hearing this question at the same time because it's a long one and I'm reading it as I am trying to also not leave dead airspace here on the radio. Uh, Connie, or sorry, this is Brittany says, hi, Vina. I just discovered your show. Love it. I'm listening to every episode. It was a bit of kismet because my husband and I have been planning on getting into real estate to tackle our massive student debt and build our portfolio. He has background in construction and has done some home renovations over the years. We own a home with a mortgage. And as I mentioned, we have massive student debt, so our assets are very limited. I've been listening to a lot of the podcasts. So what she's talking about is the radio shows that are recorded and then put up on realliferealestate.com on debt-free real estate, which is how I'd like to proceed. The end goal is freedom defined for me as paying off all of our debt, partially retiring in the next 10 years and moving back to the very expensive San Francisco market with enough passive income to pay our expenses. My question is this, what five books would you recommend for someone in our situation looking to get started in our venture in debt-free real estate? And how do I go about finding these investors that I always hear about on your show? Thank you for your time and consideration. All right. I think I can say some books that are about debt-free investing. Um, I would start with Life and Air. It's, it's L-I-F-E-O-N-A-I-R-E, which is actually kind of the only book that I know that you can get on Amazon.com that's actually about debt-free investing in real estate. There's a lot of stuff about being debt-free. You know, Dave Ramsey's famous for writing books about being debt-free. He's also kind of anti real estate investing though, unless you can pay cash for houses. Um, so I guess I don't have a recommendation beyond that one, except that if you're going to buy it from Amazon, go to WMKVFM.org first and click the Amazon button in that upper right hand corner and then order it through Amazon. It won't cost you any money, any extra money to do that, but it'll give WMKV, which is a nonprofit real estate Nonprofit real estate, nonprofit radio station, a little bit of money from that. And your question about finding, quote, finding these investors I always hear about on your show, go find and join your local quality RIA organization, Real Estate Investors Association. They're not all called RIAs. In different places, they might have different names. But if you Google Real Estate Association Plus, wherever you're from, you will find at least one. You might find two or three. If you find two or three, go visit them all and see which one has the like real servant mentality of we're here for our members and the best group of like excited, motivated, supportive members and then join that one. Thank you for your question and good luck with your 10-year retirement plan, Brittany. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to question and answer week on real life, real estate investing. I promised that I was going to share some of the other market recommendations from listeners that we got from the show a couple of weeks ago, but didn't have time to get to. 
And by the way, the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meeting uh, of two weeks ago was on this same topic. And I learned so much from just listening to other investors who are in specialties and have like read more than I have about that part of the market or who have just a lot of experience in that part of the market. I, y'all who belong to groups that are not Cincinnati area need to contact your group leaders and say, Hey, let's have a panel of our experienced members talking about their predictions for 2022. And also, Tomorrow night is the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati live in person monthly meeting. And uh, if you are in the Cincinnati area, I would say go to that because the uh, speaker is uh, Tom Barry, who was on last week's program. And he's going to talk about how he built up a rental portfolio of 400 doors in about four years starting with that situation he talked about last week where he was basically bankrupt. If you're interested in rental properties and you're kind of interested in how somebody would fast track that, get to the Cincinnati RIA meeting, it is in person. You can find out more about it and grab a seat at CincinnatiRIA.com. All right. So first comment we missed was is from Max, who says that his topic is the short-term rental market. He says, just thought to chime in. We have owned a three-bedroom, two-bath in Pigeon Forge for nine months now, and here are the main things for short-term vacation, short-termers in vacation rental markets. I'd like to stress this is for vacation rental markets only. The nightly rates will continue to increase in 2022. We've raised the price a few times and people continue to book. Purchasing a short-term rental in a vacation market is very challenging. Very low inventory is causing 20 to 40 offers in the 400 to $850,000 price point range. Wow. 40 offers of three quarters of a million dollars. Appraisal gaps of $50,000 are not uncommon. So in other words, what he's saying is people are bidding vacation rentals up so high that they bid $850,000. The appraisal only comes in at $800,000. So they not only have to put down 20% of $800,000, they also have to make up the other $50,000 in order to actually buy that property. He says, February is typically a month where people flood the market with listings, according to our real estate agents. So inventory may climb shortly, but also people all over the world are sitting around working from home and consuming tons of knowledge about what to do with the money they have stacking up. So competition will stay high. All right. So it sounds like good news and bad news for the short term rental market from Max, and thank you for that input, Max. Uh, okay, got a question here from the email. Is does not have a name in it. Let me, nope, the, it's not signed with a name either. I'm just going to call this person M because that's what his email starts with. He says, I'm looking for a way to solve a tax problem for a seller so I can buy a group of properties. The seller owns numerous properties in my area. They're free and clear and greatly depreciated. 
the seller's son has documented legal control of all the properties. So the son has something like a power of attorney or a guardianship. The control was fully documented by attorneys prior to her entering a memory care facility located in a community several hundred miles away. One of her three sons is in the same location and is trying to manage the property as best he can from afar. They want to dispose of all the properties. The controlling son is reasonable and has been very cooperative cooperative with me. The owner depends on the income from the properties to pay for her health care and meet her other obligations. She's 75 and in reasonably good health other than the mental issues. He's not opposed to doing a 1031 exchange. So in other words, if they could find a property that they liked that was, I guess, easier to manage, that they could trade into, they'd be willing to do that to avoid the taxes. He's looking for a the right setup in St. Augustine or Miami. My friend and I would like to acquire these properties in one package. He owns a successful real estate company and a property management company, but has very little time to work on the acquisition since we're an incredible market and he's really busy. The locations are great, but the properties have gotten a little run down and we would have to put several hundred thousand in repairs and upgrades to bring them into great shape. We could, we would consider buying and holding them. We would consider buying and holding them and selling off some properties each year and carry back a note on those properties. We would consider setting up some kind of master lease or purchasing outright for cash. I'm estimating the seller needs about 250 a year in income for these properties. These are in great locations, growing area, rising market, don't have the rent rolls yet. And then some other little details. Okay, so since you have a flexible seller here in in the form of the actual owner's son, and you have an owner who you know needs the income from these properties, in order to continue to get the care she's getting. It seems to me that if, if these people, I'm a, I'm a real estate agent, so if these sellers were my clients and were asking me for advice, I would say, well, go to your attorney after I tell you this, because I'm not an attorney, but uh, y'all need to sell, you all need to sell these in a way where you can be assured of long-term income in this price range, because if you sell them for cash, you are going to pay a lot of the money that you get in cash out in taxes, which will leave you much less money to then do what with? If you put it in a CD, you're going to get 2%. If you get 2%, is that $250,000 a year? Probably not. So something like them selling them all to you and carrying back mortgages at a, at a payment that make makes sense for you. It's got, it can't be, it this can't 100% be based on what she, if $250,000 a year means that the properties won't cash flow for you, don't do it. And which went on for the long term. All right. This is, it wouldn't be like a three-year deal. It would be like a 10-year or 15-year. Or She's 75. She could live another 20 years, and it would be bad for her to run out of money because you paid her off on the properties, and then she didn't. She had to start eating her principal, right? That strategy would not 
make her capital gains taxes go away, but it should make it, and she would need to talk to her CPA about this, so that she could pay the capital gains taxes as the money that you were paying her for the properties came in. So it would lessen the bite. The thing that would make them go away, at least right now, would be if you were to master lease the properties with an option to buy them for the price that the two of you agree on. And that would be a long-term master lease and option, like 20 years potentially. Talking to a couple of CPAs who've been on the show, they tell me that if you were to do that arrangement with this family, mom would get the rents every month, which hopefully would equal this amount of money that she needs. And your purchase price would remain the same throughout the next 20 years. But when mom passed away and you exercised your option and either bought the properties or you could exercise the option through selling the properties, the kids would inherit the properties at a stepped up basis, which means they would not pay the capital gains tax. Now, that's all assuming that there's still such thing as a stepped up basis when you exercise the option, of course. We, we don't know what's going to happen in the future with that. But that might be your best strategy. So if you don't understand how to set up master lease options, if you don't know how to set them up in a way that protects both you and your seller, like protects your seller against you not making payments and protects you against um, the kids deciding not to sell to you after all, after mom dies, you need to go study up on that or go find somebody in your market who has done lots of those and let them walk you through it along with, of course, an attorney, right? So, I mean, it sounds like, congratulations for digging up this opportunity. It sounds like it could be a really good one, but don't go into it until you or some advisor that you trust completely understands everything about it. All right, we have time for one quiet final question. This one is from Janine, who says she's from Maria, which I, I don't actually know if she means Mid-Atlantic Rhea in Baltimore or if she means Mid-American Rhea in Kansas City, but... Either way, thank you, Janine, for your question. Uh, she says, I was wondering at what age do you consider replacing f appliances like furnace, AC compressors, etc., if they're still working, not covered in rust, but over a decade old? Ooh, so, Janine, that depends on, did I just buy the property and I'm stabilizing it? Or are we talking about a property that I already own and I, maybe I put the furnace in 11 years ago? Because in case number one, if I'm looking at a 12-year-old furnace and knowing that it's kind of at the end of its lifespan, I'm going to replace it right now even if it's working. Because it's easier to borrow the money when I buy a property to do stuff like that than it is later on. If it's a furnace in a house I already own, I don't just go in and replace a working furnace. The, 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 these things don't typically break down like all at once. Like what, it goes from being perfectly fine to one day to being scrap metal the next day. There's usually something in between there where you got to replace a blower and then you got to replace the, you know, whatever, the heating element. And when it gets to the point where I'm replacing stuff like that all the time, and it, I, I'm actually slowly replacing the whole furnace, I, that's when it goes away and we get a new one. So it depends. 
That's the answer to all great real estate questions, right? Well, we are out of time for this week's Q&A episode. If you have a question that you'd like to get answered on the next one, send it to askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.